Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, after several months of hand-wringing and political posturing, the efforts to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act came up short in Congress. The Republican American Health Care Act never made it to the House floor to pass it along to the Senate for consideration. Some analysts are calling this a stunning defeat for the GOP and the president, all of whom promised to repeal and replace Obamacare with something better. Well, there was a groundswell of opposition to the replacement legislation, which was just too great, Mark, and it came from a lot of different quarters, uh, particularly when the Congressional Budget Office predicted the GOP law would not only cost many consumers more money and cover much less, but would lead to 24 million Americans losing their health coverage. The bill's author, House Speaker Paul Ryan, admitted defeat, saying the people had spoken and that apparently Obamacare would be the law of the land for the foreseeable future. While President Trump and GOP leadership have said they are moving on to other issues, there will still be health care legislation requiring budgetary approval. And that's an area where a simple majority is needed in the Senate, which could lead to undermining funding for some key aspects of the Obamacare provisions. So I think uh, this isn't the last we've heard on health reform. But, you know, there are areas of healthcare that are transforming outside the scope of policymakers and legislation. Uh, these are areas that we think are poised to improve access to care and outcomes of care across many sectors of healthcare. And one of those very promising areas is certainly telehealth or telemedicine. Our guest today, Peter Yellowlees, president elect of the American Telemedicine Association and thought leader in the deployment of telemedicine protocols to improve behavioral health. Really looking forward to that conversation, Margaret. And Lori Robertson will be checking in, the managing editor of factcheck.org. She is always on the lookout for misstatements made about health policy in the public domain. And no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Dr. Peter Yellowlease in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. The swift death of the American Health Care Act still leaves many questions in its wake, chief among them, what comes next? President Trump predicted that Obamacare would, quote, explode in the near future. House Speaker Paul Ryan said it is the law of the land for the foreseeable future. But some calls for bipartisanship are starting to rise to the surface. Republican Senator Susan Collins of Maine says the collapse of the GOP health bill actually paves the way now for some true bipartisan solution making. She was among a vocal minority of Senate Republicans who were opposed to the intent of the American Health Care Act, which would have removed many consumer protections and would have led to the loss of insurance coverage for an estimated 24 million Americans. She said now that the House bill has died, more Democrats may feel free to come to the table. The human papillomavirus is responsible for six known cancers in adults, and the HPV vaccine is the only known hedge against catching the virus. But still, a relatively low percent of teenage girls and boys are getting the recommended dose of three vaccinations spread out from age 9 to age 14. Now, a study shows the most current form of the vaccine, Gardasil 9, only requires two doses in the same age group. The vaccine protects against nine types of HPV, ones that are responsible for over 90 percent of cervical cancers or a variety of cancers in other parts of the body connected to sexual contact. In 2015, only about 
about 30% of teen girls have been properly vaccinated and 25% of the boys. There are almost 40,000 HPV-related cancers diagnosed per year, and that number would be significantly reduced with proper vaccination. And here's a touchy-feely story. Scientists have found a way to make a synthetic skin-like substance that can actually feel the substance made from graphene, an increasingly promising material in scientific research. It's just one atom thick. It's strong, electrically conductive, and transparent. Scientists in Glasgow have found a way to power the sensors using solar power. Smart prosthetic hands in particular can already reproduce many mechanical properties of human limbs, and giving them a skin-like sense of touch would make them even more useful for amputees. I'm Arianna O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Peter Yellowlees, Professor of Clinical Psychiatry at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health Sciences and Vice Chair of Faculty Development at the University of California, Davis. Dr. Yellowlees serves on the National Academy of Sciences Review Committee, evaluating mental health services at the Veterans Administration. He is president-elect of the American Telemedicine Association, the leading international organization promoting the use of remote medicine technologies in healthcare. He's written over two 200 peer review articles, and five books, including Your Health in the Information Age. He earned his medical degree in behavioral science at the Royal Free Hospital School of Medicine. Dr. Yellowlees, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. You know, over the past few years, there's been a significant growth in the interest and uptake of telehealth and telemedicine in the United States. And before coming to the United States, you spent your earlier career practicing psychiatric medicine in Australia, where telemedicine gained an early foothold. I wonder if you could tell our listeners about your early experience utilizing telemedicine and help us understand the scope and potential of telehealth in the United States. Sure. Uh, I mean, I was living in Australia for a number of years and at one stage lived in the outback. Um, I'm a psychiatrist by training, and the area that I was responsible for was actually the same landmass as California. So imagine that there's uh, one psychiatrist for the whole Mm. of California. That meant that I spent a lot of time on airplanes, flying several hundred miles to do clinics. Um, I got very used to using the telephone to speak to sort of suicidal people. And so I got interested in uh, telemedicine and remote technologies. Really, from a clinical point of view, I just had a problem. I couldn't manage the whole area all by myself. You might be interested to know uh, how much uh, I actually had to pay for the first video conferencing (laughs) machines that I bought back in about 1990. You know, they were actually one hundred and seventy thousand dollars. Oh my each. gosh! We remember those three hundred dollar <laughs> calls. <laughs> right, exactly. It was just incredible. So it was never going to be economically viable in those days, but it was very interesting from a research point of view. And I guess that's what's driven me over the years to to try and demonstrate how effectively you can use these technologies. I mean, the differences now are just you know dramatic, and really, technology is no longer a problem. You know, you can do more on your phone now than you could on those uh, early systems that I spent an enormous amount of money on. Um, There's been also a huge change in attitudes, particularly with the younger generation. Uh, People under 30, you know, we typically think of as being digital natives. 
you know, whose whole life has been shaped by the Internet, who've never lived without the Internet, um, and who have different expectations of being able to get information uh, immediately. Whereas, uh, you know, people in my generation in reality are, are what we call digital immigrants. And that, that just leaves us with a different set of attitudes, unfortunately. And then people always used to think of, um, say, telemedicine or using these technologies as being an either-or choice situation. Mm -hmm. So you should either see someone in person or you should see them online. And the reality of life is that increasing numbers of patients are being seen in a hybrid manner. You know, they sometimes see their doctor in person, they sometimes see them online. Um, and essentially, the doctor-patient relationship nowadays, you know, with the help of technology, has become a much more fluid and, quite honestly, better relationship. Well, Dr. Yellowlees, UC Davis has been a leader in the use of telemedicine, I think having utilized some form of telehealth since 1992. And you've had a long time to analyze the effectiveness of such services in clinical settings. And your department at UC Davis has just released a longitudinal analysis of outcome data that's called from almost 20 years and looks at everything from improved patient access to care, uh, even all the way up to impact on the environment from conducting thousands of patient interactions online. What did the study reveal in terms of improved access, better outcomes, and also uh, cost savings? The two biggest disciplines that we have using it are actually uh, psychiatry and dermatology. Um, that's not surprising. They're both very visual disciplines. Um, we also do quite a lot of emergency medicine, particularly in, in, uh, in the child area, pediatrics. And actually, it's Professor Jim Marson who's the, the lead author on this study, and he's a pediatrician. Um, so what uh, essentially Dr. Marsden did was to just review uh, 20 years' worth of consultations, and he looked at the, the disciplines involved, any outcome data that we have, uh, and then he also looked at the, uh, the sort of green outcomes. Um, and, you know, what we found is that clearly access is improved. The clinical outcomes for the individual patients that we've seen generally are at least as good as if they were seen in person, but they tend to have less hospitalizations. Hmm. And, and that's actually where the savings are in telemedicine. Mm -hmm. And if you look at uh, our results and also the results from a number of studies from the VA, what you find is that because you can access patients uh, often earlier in their illness mm -hmm. um, uh, and they don't have to sort of wait and get sicker, but you get uh, savings through less emergency visits and less hospitalizations. And then obviously the final thing that uh, Dr. Masson did was to look at carbon emissions and the amount of carbon uh, going into the environment that uh, has been reduced through the use of telemedicine. And this is a, this is a very important uh, issue, and it's something that at the national level, the American Telemedicine Association is, uh, is going to be taking up. Because clearly, if we can in fact have less travel in medicine, and if we can reduce the travel by, by using more telemedicine, more remote monitoring, um, then we will absolutely reduce the amount of carbon that goes into the environment and thereby uh, slow climate change. Huh. You know, that part of that study was uh, sort of suggesting that we aren't uh, seeing the real savings in overall health care costs. And it was good to hear you say that uh, actually if you start looking downstream, uh, that there are savings. Rand Corporation uh, came to the conclusion that it facilitates a higher utilization, though Kaiser, on the other hand, saw that it was streamlining their care. So your experience is, is a little different. Uh, maybe you can tell us, are there other randomized clinical trials going on to sort of look at the cost-benefit analysis that clearly everybody would want to see in what looks like a, a better way to deliver, redesign part of the delivery system? Yes, I think most of the studies that are typically done in healthcare only look at the savings to healthcare providers. 
and those savings tend to be less with telemedicine. Um, as I say, there has been a number of studies in the VA, uh, particularly in the mental health area, that have shown very dramatic savings because of reduced hospital admissions that the patients with telemedicine have. But, um, you know, if in fact you look more broadly at savings and you look at the savings made by both patients and providers, then in fact you find telemedicine incredibly efficient because, I mean, you know yourself that uh, it's common to have to take a half day off work to go and see your doctor. Mm-hmm. You, you travel, you wait in a waiting room. Uh, if you could in fact just log in from your work and see your doctor in a sort of half hour slot, mm-hmm. um, you'd save an enormous amount of uh, time and potential money and, and time at work. So I think we have to look broadly at the savings that you make through these technologies. And if you, if you include both patients in the actual equation, then the savings become really, uh, really impressive. Hmm. Well, Dr. Yellowlees, you've also spent some considerable time, I think, focusing on the efficacy of asynchronous telepsychiatry. Uh, this allows primary care clinicians more rapid access to psychiatric screenings and diagnoses utilizing, I understand, taped interviews with patients and then sharing them with a psychiatrist. And I understand that's a tool that you've used for some time in your own practice. Describe, if you will, what's different about this approach from other approaches in telemedicine and how does this asynchronous psychiatry work in your practice? And and I'm betting this also has some potential implications for how we train the next generation of psychiatrists and behavioral health providers too. Look, this is a really exciting area, and I think it's symptomatic of the way that medicine is going and that we're tending to use more and more of these asynchronous consultations. In other words, consultations where you're not necessarily physically meeting with the patient. For many years in psychiatry, we have, we've done what we call curbside consultations, mm-hmm. so that uh, a mm-hmm. primary care doc will, will ring a psychiatrist, will you know, have maybe a two- to four-minute conversation with that person, will run some some uh, components, some, some issues of a patient uh, you know, past the uh, psychiatrist. The psychiatrist will give them an opinion and suggest a few things they can try. All we're doing with um, the asynchronous telepsychiatry is saying that's a great uh, model to use, um, but why don't we actually record the patient? And uh, instead of me just ringing you about the patient, I can actually send you a recording of the patient. Mm-hmm. You can get to see what they look like. You can get mm-hmm. to see how they answer Uh, questions, Mm -hmm. and then you can give me an opinion. Uh, It's really very simple. Um, We've seen many hundreds of patients like this now. We've done a number of studies showing that you can be just as accurate diagnostically uh, seeing these patients using this approach as you can having them come and see you in your rooms. Now, we're only using this for patients who the primary care physician wants a, an opinion mm-hmm. with. We'll give them a diagnosis. We'll, we'll give them, you know, potentially a, a treatment plan. Um, but we're not obviously providing therapy like this. Mm-hmm. We are able, however, to monitor people. And we've been doing a study recently looking at uh, several hundred patients who have chronic medical and psychiatric illnesses. And we're doing these asynchronous consultations every six months to basically help the primary care doc with their overall management mm-hmm. uh, of, of their patient. We're speaking today with Dr. Peter Yellowlees, president-elect of the American Telemedicine Association, professor of clinical psychiatry at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health Sciences at the University of California, Davis. Dr. Yellowlees serves on the National Academy of Science Review Committee evaluating mental health services at the Veterans Administration. I'd really like to talk a little bit about the VA. Uh, obviously, it's been struggling to improve timely access and health outcome for American vets. And this is especially important in helping the large number of veterans dealing with PTSD uh, and other behavioral health challenges. 
I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners, given that you're serving in an advisory capacity, what are you sharing from your own personal and clinical experience that you believe will help improve access as well as outcomes? Sure. If we look at the VA generally, the VA is actually the world leader in telemedicine as an organization. They have been amazing. They've done a lot of work in this area in multiple different specialties. Um, uh, Now, in my own discipline, for instance, of mental health, they did something like half a million consultations in the last year. And they've done some very nice research showing that uh, these consultations are highly cost-effective, as I mentioned earlier on, mainly Mm -hmm. because patients Mm -hmm. tend to get admitted to hospital less frequently. So the VA is already a real leader in this area. Um, What I think the VA needs to do in reality is to expand their use of telemedicine even more. Um, If you look at uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, for instance, as uh, as an illness, the nature of the illness is that people tend to be avoidant. They tend to prefer not to have to go out and deal with perhaps the local hospital or the local bureaucracy. And there's a lot of evidence, in fact, that if you can video conference or connect with veterans in their homes, that you can actually provide better care using technologies than you can in person, and you get better results. There's been several very good studies of PTSD showing actually more engagement of veterans in in treatment, and particularly in psychotherapy. So there's been some really interesting studies that the VA has done that, that really, I guess, paved the way for what I hope will be a substantial increase in their use of uh, these types of treatment modalities. Well, Dr. Yelis, I want to circle back again to this issue of training. And, of course, the VA is also one of the largest trainers of new physicians and other healthcare professionals in the country. But this this enormous growth that we have in clinical and scientific knowledge certainly uh, is a challenge for training the new providers of the future as well as the current folks. And I understand you have a very keen interest in online learning and its game-changing potential in medical training and training all healthcare professionals. Uh, Talk with us about why you believe online learning is so important. How do you see it potentially shifting the paradigm of health profession training in the coming years? Sure. I think uh, one of the things that we've really learned is uh, that in particular the younger generations really do see the world and interact with the world very differently from people of, uh, of my generation who are typically the teachers. And so, you know, we need to connect with them. We need to work in a way that they prefer to work and they're used to working. We need to, you know, essentially move away from the tradition of sort of hour-long lectures and, you know, the sort of non-interactive approach, uh, sort of almost a passive-dependent approach of traditional education and become much more experiential, much uh, more interactive and provide information in shorter amounts um, but in a very concentrated and focused way. Um, so we're developing all sorts of, you know, literally bites of information. Hmm. Uh, for instance, I've been working with uh, Medscape for the last eight years now uh-huh. to produce the Medscape Psychiatry Minute, which yeah. is, you know, available free for sure. anyone. Yeah. Um, there it. are something like 160 of those Medscape Psychiatry Minutes available on the web now, none of which are more than two minutes long. Hmm. Um, but all of which focus on a very specific paper and then uh, some comments and editorial thoughts that I have about that particular paper. Um, and these are, these are used all around the world. And people see me as being the sort of the Medscape Psychiatry Minute person. And, uh, and they're clearly able to reach an enormous audience, very much more than you can possibly reach in the traditional approach to teaching you know, in, in a lecture theatre. So I think we've got to really think very carefully about essentially our consumers of information in healthcare, and the consumers basically want 
online information. They want it just in time when, when they need it now. Um, and they want it um, you know, in a visual way. Dr. Yellowlees, obviously there are lots of changes going on in the American healthcare system. The the Affordable Care Act is under assault. And I know the uh, American Telemedicine Association probably found some wind in its sails under the Affordable Care Act in terms of uh, advancing your cause. I'm wondering what your agenda is for your organization as it seeks to advance in this new political environment, more access and better reimbursement for telemedicine. Uh, what's the agenda look like? Sure, I think this is a really important issue. And, and if I can just put a plug in, uh, the uh, conference of the American Telemedicine Association this year is in Orlando on April the 23rd to the 26th. And we will have somewhere between six and 7,000 experts, many of whom are sort of work in the C-suite, uh, coming to that conference. And this is clearly going to be one of the major topics Telemedicine, I think in reality, is actually supported by both sides of the uh, political spectrum. Uh, the, the beauty of it, quite honestly, is, is, is that it increases the efficiency of the healthcare system, and it is particularly likely to be successful in an environment where there are sort of capitated payments or where you pay for mm-hmm. services over time. Um, and that's very much a direction that the Centers for Medicare have been going in. You know, we don't know if that's going to change, um, but, you know, the general approach from certainly both federal and state uh, regulators is to start trying to pay for care over periods of time. And it's in that environment that telemedicine is really valuable. And so the the ATA is very positive about Mm -hmm. the uh, political climate overall. Uh, And we're, you know, we've been working obviously with, uh, with everyone on the Hill and uh, are keen to to progress these discussions. Well, Dr. Yellowlees, you know that studies show patients are uh, increasingly interested in making uh, this technology and telehealth part of their personal care continuum. And you've said that things like Google Glass and mobile health are potentially poised to really transform the patient-provider experience by adding real-time data and health monitoring to a patient's profile and then hopefully facilitating the communication between patients and providers. Maybe just talk with us a minute about some of the more promising technological advances that are supporting the growth of telehealth, and are there any uh, clear technological hurdles that you think we have yet to overcome? Well, I think the the best way of answering this is to think about two two, uh, examples of slightly more futuristic projects I've been involved in in the last few years. Um, The first is one that has been run out of my own lab, and that's where we're looking at automating the process of uh, of translation, language translation. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I think that's really important. We Mm -hmm. know that people who don't have English as a natural first language do worse in the healthcare system, despite, you know, all of the attempts of Mm -hmm. of the many interpreters that we Mm -hmm. use. They spend longer in hospital, they get less good care. And so we're working on essentially developing automated translation systems that will allow you to interview and record patients and then have that immediately spun back um, you know, in real time, essentially in any other language you choose, so that you can uh, you know, take a patient who speaks Hmong, um, have that, uh, that interview immediately reviewed mm-hmm. by maybe an English-speaking uh, physician. So I think that's one area that, that is potentially enormous, and that can be done both in person with patients, perhaps via um, you know iPads or phones or you know Google Glass type devices, um, or it can be done uh, you know on video at a distance. So, and I think you'll find that within a few years we'll be using those sorts of systems pretty routinely. 
Uh, the second one is, you know, is more way out than that, and that's the potential to use, uh, say, virtual reality. There's been a lot of studies looking at that in, in medicine generally, uh, and uh, essentially creating uh, avatars for both mm-hmm. patients and providers and then getting them to meet in the cloud. But there's some fascinating studies that are being done at USC at the moment in Los Angeles where they've actually developed a whole series of um, avatar providers. So that if, for instance, you know, you have depression or PTSD, you can literally log on and you can speak to a, you know, a therapist uh, who is, uh, and the therapist is an avatar that is basically trained to respond to your questions and your movements in certain ways that are hopefully helpful. Now, we're certainly not there yet with automated providers, but I think that's down the track. We've been speaking today with Dr. Peter Yellowlease, president-elect of the American Telemedicine Association, professor of clinical psychiatry and vice chair of faculty development at the University of California, Davis. You can learn more about his work by going to ucdavis.edu slash medical center slash Peter Yellowlease hyphen psychiatry, or you can follow him on Twitter at Peter Yellowlease. And you can also follow the American Telemedicine Association at American Telemed. Dr. Yellowlease, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations in Healthcare today. Thank you very much indeed, uh, both Mark and Margaret. It's been most interesting, and I appreciate your time. At Conversations in Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Both Democrats and Republicans have been spinning the Congressional Budget Office's analysis of the Republican health care bill. The White House budget director oversold what the CBO said about the bill's impact on premiums. Mick Mulvaney, the director of the White House Office of Management Budget, said the CBO report confirmed the GOP philosophy that a free market would reduce premiums. Mulvaney said, quote, CBO says that premiums will go down by at least 10 percent with this plan. Premiums on the non-group market, where individuals buy their own insurance, will not go down from what they are right now. They will just be lower than what they would be under the Affordable Care Act on average by 2026. Also, Mulvaney ignores two important points. Average premiums would increase in the first two years, and older Americans would see substantial increases in the short and long run. The CBO report says that in 2018 and 2019, average premiums on the non-group market would be 15% to 20% higher than under current law for a single person's policy. For older Americans, the GOP plan would allow insurers to charge them up to five times as much as younger people. Under the ACA, the ratio was three to one. CBO said that would lead to premiums for a 64-year-old that would be 20% to 25% higher by 2026. The GOP plan changes the current income-based tax credits for those buying their own insurance to age-based tax credits. But CBO said those wouldn't be large enough to offset the premium increases for older Americans. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare.
Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Pregnancy is normally an exciting time for most women, but according to the research, an estimated 10% of prenatal women experience some kind of depression during their pregnancy, and many are reluctant to treat their depression with medication for fear of harming the fetus. In fact, a higher percentage are experiencing lower-grade depressive symptoms, so they might not meet full criteria for a major depressive episode. And left untreated, those mild to moderate symptoms symptoms can progress, in some cases lead to a more serious postpartum depression. Dr. Cynthia Battle is a psychologist at Brown University with a practice at Women's and Infants Hospital in Providence. She and her colleagues decided to test a cohort of pregnant women to see if a targeted prenatal yoga class, which combines exercise with mindfulness techniques, might have a positive impact on women dealing with prenatal depression. And it was a typical kind of hatha yoga that would include physical postures, meditation exercises. And we enrolled 34 women who were pregnant, who had clinical levels of depression, and we measured their change in depressive symptoms over that period of time. Not only were women able to manage their depressive incidents, they also bonded with other pregnant women during the program and found additional support from their group. Women who are depressed during pregnancy, unfortunately, do often have less ideal birth outcomes. So one thing we're interested in seeing if when we provide prenatal yoga program, can it improve mood? And then can we even see some positive effects in terms of the birth outcomes? A guided non-medical yoga exercise program designed to assist pregnant women through depression symptoms without medication, ensuring a safer pregnancy and a healthier outcome for mother and baby. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare, broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.